0: Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 60. Today we're going to be talking about the rise of China. I've been surprised by how many people have discussed this in recent years, the the influence China has over our economy, the influence that China has, and power that they have in the world as as a major player in it. And on the surface, so much of their power makes perfect sense. And you can see why, because of trade deals, because of their massive population and their, their rising productivity and things, why presidents in, in the various, uh, from both political parties have focused a lot on discussing trade deals with China, how they're robbing us or not robbing us, how they're, how they're, uh, manipulating currencies and things like that. I, I'm thinking back to is, uh, the first real election that I followed was, uh, was when mitt romney was running um and ironically it, it was mitt romney versus uh obama right and uh this is back in what 12 years ago 13 years i don't i don't even remember the presidential election year some people can pull these off the top of their head because they're such a big <laughs> a big thing but are you gonna say something? I was
1: I was gonna say don't don't start speculating because it makes us look very ill informed. and <laughs> just just say you know as, as soon as, as soon as you ask the question you you realize that the answer doesn't matter. If you're asking the question, you don't know. You know.
0: <laughs> no, it's and it's true of most tracking of dates and things. I feel bad for the high school students who are memorizing dates that they could they don't know the importance of and and probably never will. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter if they memorized them all. And even if they remembered them their whole life. Anyway, besides the point, China, uh, one of the clearest examples of this in recent years is, uh, is the NBA. The NBA and the influence China has on them is pretty straightforward. There is a growing population of fans of the NBA and of basketball in general in China. And so the NBA exports entertainment to China and it's extremely profitable for them. And at that point, it becomes in their best interest to maintain that, to continue to make money if they want to grow and expand. You behave in ways that will keep China happy. And there's a strange thing here in that uh, that the way, if, if you were have fans in some other country, uh, the key is don't offend those fans. Mm-hmm. But if you're dealing with China, You have to not offend the Chinese government because they will, in a heartbeat, cut you off from the fans. They will intervene and it it will, they won't even think twice about it if there's something they don't like about it in order to economically punish you for going against whatever it is that they, that they stand for.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of people who are disturbed by, by how quick, you know, the NBA will kowtow to China is not just that idea of, of, you know, people talk about cancel culture, which is the, what, what happens here in the U.S., you know, if you say something that's politically incorrect, then, then your fans can turn on you and you can get protested and, and you can, you know, get cut off from, you know, your revenue source in that way. But what's happening with China is a little bit different, as Dan's saying, because China is not like the United States, you know, all, you know, all internet, all entertainment, everything that's, you know moved into China I want to say export into China is all heavily controlled by the Chinese government i mean particularly entertainment is directly controlled by the Chinese government and so if you offend the Chinese government that gets cut off which means that you've got things like uh who was it John Cena who publicly apologized <laughs> for I believe it was was referring to Taiwan as a country. Yes, yes. You know, that was his grave tra- travesty, and he apologized directly to China for it in order to maintain that relationship. I mean, the NBA is not the only one. I mean, Hollywood itself, you know, has uh-huh. so many movie releases. You know, we always talk about the the U.S. box office and the worldwide box office, but really it's, you know – Asia is a huge part of that, and China is a huge part of Asia in terms of that revenue stream
0: yes it, it it's interesting the you entertainment is the most public of these I think it's also the most dominant of these i I don't know how many other things we're importing into China I mean no doubt it's a ton, but in terms of places where the cost where the where they're making so much money on it uh I think entertainment is probably the the big industry there that uh, that isn't being <laughs> – well, the Chinese industries aren't trying to compete with them in the same way. Mm-hmm. I, mean, you, I don't know how much of our steel China is importing. My guess would be almost zero, right? It'd be very low. Um, rather, they're exporting lots of steel to the world. And the same with a lot of the manufactured goods. I, I don't expect that many Chinese people go shopping at the market and look for the American brand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, like, they're like, Oh, this was made in America. What yeah, that yeah, yeah. Whereas it's the abs, it's utterly ordinary for us to be looking at a product and be like made in China to the point where that's not even a factor anymore because almost everything's made in China. I mean, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So much of it's made in China. Uh, it, that, uh, the effect the government has being able to so unilaterally pull the plug on things. Makes a big difference in the way that people try and control the message of their entertainment so that that can sell in China. It's like if you, if you had to modify a few words of what you were going to say in order to get another 50% income on whatever it is or to, you know, it it seems like a very simple economic ca- calculation for the entertainers and for the, the Hollywood elite for the, the wrestling industry. Apparently, I'm now imagining a big Chinese event with WWE wrestlers. And <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> oh, WWE! It's a beautiful. It's a beautiful thing in its own way. <laughs> but all of this makes uh, uh, makes for a lot of concern about the Chinese economy and about how and about their power over us. And it's amplified by the fact that as you look at the, the increase in economic power of China, it's been a very rapid incline. And so people are like, well, at this rate, China is going to be the dominant market in the world, which means that this power is only going to grow until all of American businesses and all of American life is largely shaped by these same things that these entertainers are going mm-hmm. through, the same filter. And that's a that's a world that a lot of people don't like because it, it ultimately it would mean China controls the culture. Right? They can control the entertainment. They control the words you say and don't say. Uh, they can control, even to some degree, higher education by the the students that they send and, and where they allow them to go and those kind of things. So much of our of our things can be through mere finances through mere economics no and, and a great example of China. that
1: is a uh, is what the US has done over the last 60 years the US you know economically and financially was the superpower and and because of that became the cultural center of the world for a long time yes. and and that had huge effects on almost every other country in the world. Every other country in the world has been affected by the United States. And that's a very real, even though they weren't necessarily militarily affected by us, even though some were. But for the most part, <laughs> for the most yeah, part, yeah. our economic dominance did result in some kind of cultural dominance. And now people are coming terms to the fact that, number one, we are losing that economic dominance, and therefore the cultural one, and China looks like it could be the replacement, the next economic superpower that then becomes the the cultural
0: power. Right. Right. That we'd be, we'd be getting their values and their, uh, their morals and things, whether we wanted to or not, just based on, on the way it works when you're the economic superpower. Yeah. And it, and it makes sense. I think that's a, I think it's a reasonable thing to be concerned about the idea that, that, uh, that the economic, that the most prosperous countries, uh, have a massive sway over less prosperous countries. Mm-hmm. And that that's just the way it is. Uh, for better or worse, that's, that's how it works. And this is the kind of problem that you see Joe Biden uh, rewinding to his campaigning and things when he, when he's calling for unity when he's calling for a united front and a large part of that, and we were surprised by this. I remember when we were talking about this with, with the uh, back when they were doing the, uh, the, the, uh, when the democratic party appointed him and uh, as a representative, the, uh, the, the, the DNC, the DNC, yeah. The democratic national convention, Um, how focused it was on China. That was, that was surprising rhetoric for me coming from uh, Joe Biden but yeah there surprising was because for it. it
1: didn't differentiate himself very much from Trump
0: because Trump right. was very similar in his opposition to China yeah it sounded like Trump or the Mitt Romney I mentioned some years before uh yeah, it was yeah it was, it was it's odd um but the rhetoric went something like this you have these because of the the united because of the absolute power in the technical sense, of the Chinese government. They can, they can decide what happens and it happens. They can pull the plug on something, uh, and if you have their area, you can get in. Um, you have to go through them. They're absolute control of their economy. Because of that, they have some advantage in competing economically in the world that we don't have, that can only be countered by us unified. They can only be countered by us getting together with a shared vision of the future and uniting behind it, so that the natural advantages of an absolute government could be uh, nullified by us having the same virtues but being a democracy. We could do the same things an absolute government could if we could just unite, and that would involve looking into the future. And planning ahead. And this is, this is still the rhetoric of the infrastructure bill that's going through right now. Mm-hmm. And, and making the wise decisions for the American future so that we're still the most competitive economy for decades to come. And that requires this investment, that requires this, this planning and this moving forward together. In a way that's very hard to do in democracy, but it's very easy for a dictator to do. Very easy for someone where the power is centralized. I just, this is what I want, so we do it.
1: Yeah, and, and that, and that line has a lot of weight because we've been told and we've come to believe for a long time now that there are many areas of progress and development that are just easier to do when it's done by government, you know, we we talk about, you know, a great example is looking at things like the space race, where it's something that that no one else could have done, definitely not in that time frame. And all the technological advancements that were accomplished, as we were unified in that goal, that never would have been possible in the private sector, but we were able to accomplish as a people. And Infrastructure is another one. We've always come, we've always believed that the only way you can have truly effective infrastructure, whether it's roads or, or power or any other, mm-hmm. any other major infrastructure, it has to be done on a government level. And so you need government to be efficient and effective and quick in, in doing those kinds of things. And then, and you're right. That is what Biden's trying to do with his infrastructure. And he's talked about that, about how part of it is to compete with the rest of the world that he wants us to be a new and improved United States economic power. And the way to do that is through government action, through unified action, which are of course synonymous.
0: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, when we work together, what it looks like actually is that those who are not, <laughs> those who are not interested in doing it, are compelled. This is <laughs> this is the modern doublethink of uh, of unified action. But that aside, you can you can see why that argument might be appealing. You look at China and you look at their things like uh, speed rail and things in other countries, and this tends to really impress people. And they look at that and they go, "Why don't we have that?" And and it's really simple because the private interests are not sufficient to build it. So you need a unified government. You need a government action to come in and to make it happen. And the idea is that this is clearly going to be better. This is the thing of the future and you need, uh, some kind of body that can make that happen. For the good of all of us in the long run. Because the short-term
1: economic benefits may yes. not be enough to justify, well, that we know they're not enough to justify private know, se- yeah. sector action because right. otherwise or the it private sector already would be, be done.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So you have the, and, and this, this goes to a, a, a deeper story about economics that is just so common. And it's, and it goes something like this. You have, on the one hand, you have capitalists who maybe for all their faults, are good at least in the short term. They uh, Their greed is useful in many cases to get them to do the right thing. But as soon as you are looking out over the horizon beyond five or ten years, and you're looking at what's going to come in the generations ahead, their short-term profit motives are insufficient. And perhaps there's even, you know, a lot of people will say, they're insufficient from the beginning, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm the most generous reading, right, of capitalism from from this perspective is to say, they're sure it's sufficient in some circumstances, but for long term planning it's not, and the rail is the perfect example of why that is. They can't see the the short term benefit of it, thus it's not going to happen, and thus when we need it or as we're developing into it and things, we're not going to have it. Yeah, and I would say,
1: even beyond rail, public transit in general is the ultimate example of that, right? That, yes, yes, that you're right. That it's something that's almost never executed on the private sector, that is almost always publicly funded, and it's almost always universally seen as a huge financial and economic
0: advantage to
1: have that yes. kind of system in place.
0: Yes, Uh and – uh and part of – to some degree, it seems like China has accepted that, that story that I just presented, even to the point of saying markets are useful to some degree. They've, in, in recent you know, 20, 30 years, they've done a lot to open up their economy to be more of a market economy at some levels. Well,
1: and and, and um, China cuz China is coming from a very different place than the United States is coming from. The United States is coming from a place that says markets are the ultimate good, but over the last years we've realized, you know, there are some problems with capitalism and maybe we should have more government action. Is at least the general narrative that's being told. China mm-hmm. at least ever since uh, Ever since Mao and, and his cultural revolution has been in a very different place and has never had to have a, you know, has never had to say, Hey, we need government action. We need government to do things. <laughs> no, it's been a government first nation for so long. That's, and so much of it has been government controlled. You know, what I mean, after the cultural revolution, there were government instructions on what people were going to be planting and what people were going to be doing and and direct government control of the economy. And so so for for China it's not hey I think public transit should be government controlled. It's hey I think there are a few areas of capitalism that we are going to allow in this country in order to, to benefit, but we're going to be very careful about how many of those things there are. But in general,
0: the government is going to maintain control. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Maybe in this case, we should allow something because it might work out a little better. Um, but that's not. But government <laughs> is but government control is reasoning. the default, not the new idea. Right, right. It, well, it's interesting. You mentioned the, the free market uh, tendency in the US and certainly more so... Like, people don't realize this. I think I think that's more so the case than perhaps anywhere else in the world. And why that is, is strange. Like other, even European countries don't have that. That cultural that belief, we, yeah. That cultural belief in, in market action. Mm-hmm. It's just, it was never really there. France is a good example of a European country in which we share many values and, and draw a lot from their history and, and philosophers. And um, we often, Bradley, I often quote Bastier, clearly a Frenchman, uh, and, and the French classical economists are the beginning of of where our economic ideas come from. Um, and they're developed later through and it turns into the Austrian school and different things. But it's – but that – there's so much, so much, <laughs> partially because they were the economic superpower that was dominant culture for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. France has a lot to offer the world. Uh, and uh, – but – but you, they don't share those assumptions. They don't share that tendency. And that tendency, I think, in, in the US only came about because of its history of, of being a colony in which the other pl- countries were like, we need to go and we colonize America and we're going to get wealthy off of it. There's a part of that story that people don't realize, which is that it didn't work at all like <laughs> they thought it would. Right? They went; they would create these colonies, they get these people over there, and it turns out not only is it not po- profitable, it's a money pit. Mm-hmm. You, you're throwing money into it and you're getting nothing in return. There's no easy gold. There's no Pocahontas, right? Pocahontas, where they go? Yeah, <laughs> It's, no, a, I it's a, truly a cartoon version of this, but it's also a, a decent reflection of what they were hoping for. Um, and so the British government especially was like, you know what you guys just do your own thing because it doesn't help us at all to control you or to try and get anything out of you there's nothing to get yet and it's many many decades and really more like a century before before even trade is that profitable with the <laughs> with the colonies and the in the US and anyway all of that gives us a very different cultural look because the governments left them alone because it wasn't beneficial for the government to control them because they were so poor because they were so far away and so poor. Um, but like you were saying, China is, is not at all like that. There's none of those assumptions, none of those ideas, none of the things that go into that. Um, and as such, there's, there's so much there that it's difficult to read events in China and to interpret them. It's really difficult to know what's happening because from the ground up, it's different. Mm-hmm. We Even even the private-ish businesses that we look at now don't operate on the, by the same rules. They're not playing with the same incentives. And little incentives, as we've shown over and over again, make a huge difference. And the incentives are different from the ground up. Who you have to please is different from the ground up. How a business functions there is different from the ground up. Because you exist by the leave and often with the direct support of the Chinese party, the, the Communist Party there. And that, that changes everything. Which brings us to a, a look at the Chinese economy as it is. Not as we fear that it could be. But, but, but what's as it happening is. on the floor right now with yes, the information
1: that we can find. Because it, it it's also complicated by the fact that, that government control of the media in China is, is very strong. It's complete. Yeah. And. And so that means that the information we're getting is, is what they're willing to share with us. You know, if, if that's anything you've picked up with the rise of COVID in the last two years is that China only tells the rest of the world what China wants to tell the rest of the world. And you have to take that with a grain of salt because it is, it is on message. And I mean, if you look at the United States, if you only listened to what the White House was saying about COVID over the last two years, how much of that would be inaccurate, especially, you know, because so many of the things they say have contradicted each other, you know, over the over the months and years. It's not it hasn't been consistent. Um, sorry, I'm not speaking clearly, but if you took that and said this is the only narrative coming out of the U.S., you wouldn't have a clear picture of what was happening in the U.S., You have to look at, you have, you know, you have to look at other sources than just the official government one. So when you're looking (laughs) at China, even though you're reading from these Chinese, you know, media sources, you have to picture it like that. Like this is just the government narrative for the most part. And so what are the other narratives that we're not seeing? Just as if we only heard the official U.S. government narrative and not any other narrative.
0: Yeah. And, and we could really get into the weeds of, of the comparisons of the central planners that began really in the U.S. in the early 1900s, really at the turn of the century there. Um, and, uh, and how they, they addressed the changing economy in the U.S. and how that reflected in a lot of ways how they felt about places like Russia and later on China. Um, it's, it, to me, it's a, it's a extremely interesting topic because somewhere in there, there were a lot of arguments that needed to be made that weren't, um, that would have deflected a lot of America's course that led to things like the agencies we discussed in the last episode, uh, and, and their power to control a lot of significant portions of the economy, or at least to, to dictate the, the direction of it. Um, China, one of the best or one of the most useful ways, I think, to think of the rise of China, is to think of what we were thinking to think of what we were thinking to uh Sounds good. is to look to look at how people felt about Russia when it was rising right? the the fear was that Russia would become what we think China is going to become now China obviously has a few advantages that Russia doesn't namely a massive population <laughs> mm-hmm. but Russia rose in power and was exporting its influence around the world and the Cold War was often us fighting the Russian influence, mm-hmm. right? the, the cultural influences of Russia. And uh, we feared that they were going to take our place. I mean, I guess America at that point was itself the new kind of superpower, really risen to, to its undisputed place uh, there post-World War II. Um, though it had been influential for some time yeah, before but, that it was but that point but the important
1: dominant. thing was that Russia's rise was really inevitable unless the US did something to stop it
0: yes and that's how people viewed it and that's how that's why you get uh, a lot of what Reagan did in directly contesting Russian the spread of Russian influence in other states and by states i mean countries in other countries and and uh pushing them you know trying to uh limit the spread of the Soviet Union, and, and so on. And of course,
1: the, um, the history of that is clouded by the uh, threat of nuclear war. But the reality yes. of the Cold War is that was only one part of it. And in many ways, it was a very propagandized part of it that, that, that helped the U.S. and its narrative in convincing people that the Cold War was justified was that threat. Because when you talk about vague things like economic or cultural dominance – it's not nearly as catchy as you are going to be vaporized in an instant <laughs> along with every single person that you know and love. It just doesn't have da the same can ring.
0: duck and cover.
1: Yeah. But but in reality most of the US and Russia's fight was not was not I mean obviously it wasn't a nuclear one but it wasn't even about it wasn't even about a nuclear one. I mean, you've got the Cuban Missile Crisis and some other incidents, but even the the nuclear war and the the positioning of nukes was was a uh was a was a red herring that the real the real game was the economic one, was
0: the the cultural one in yes. many, many ways. Yes. And at that time a lot of the arguments that Biden is making now were made about what the US should do to respond to it. Look, look at the, look at the natural advantages that the authoritarian institutions of the Soviet Union give them. They're united in ways that we're not, and that it's very difficult for democracy to be. We need to institute planning and all kinds of other things that uh, will help us stay competitive in the changing world. This, especially during World War II, was just crazy for this, from price controls and all kinds of other things. Um... The reality is, and this is making a very long story short, there was no hope of Russia ever becoming dominant.
1: Well, a, a, the- a great example of this, uh, the way I like to tell this story, Dan, is, uh, you know, Russia was on the rise and its rise was inevitable, which is why, you know, at the end of the 1980s, the U.S. invaded Russia and finally put a stop to it. And that's why Russia fell. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? I mean, there to I mean, be some people
0: going and telling their teachers very confused be, things be, after be, that. Because,
1: <laughs> because, because how the Cold War is told is is there's this this huge struggle, you know, through through careful fights on on very small locations, you know, through strategically, you know, you know, taking over these small countries, and then after asking Gorbachev to tear down the wall, the U.S. caused yeah. the Soviet Union to fall.
0: Yeah, it culminates with this moral moment. This, this after all these victories, we come and the final triumph is a moral or spiritual yes, and one. That, there,
1: that speech was was rhetoric to the ultimate degree because that speech had no effect on policy. Everything that was in motion in Russia was already in motion at that point. Everything that happened in Russia after that speech was a result of, th- of things at that point that were 20, 30, 40 years old they were they just took so long to
0: play to, to out. play yeah. out
1: exactly that, that that his speech had nothing to do with that that the US's maneuverings for the most part really had nothing to do with that that what happened to the Soviet Union was that it decayed from the inside out because of how it was set up and that was almost inevitable.
0: Right, right. Unless they change something. Right. Mm-hmm. They continue doing what they're doing and it's going to collapse. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and what we're talking about is not some kind of moral inevitability. We're talking economic inevitability. We're talking the physical
1: realities of the world.
0: Yeah, the physical realities of doing things cost stuff. And if you and if the cost is greater than the benefits and things, you end up just de- you can you can act in a way that ends up destroying your productive capacities and uh and that's that's precisely what we talk about when we talk about things like uh the the way that people imagine taxing billionaires does not harm the billionaire. what it does is it harms the enterprises uh that they're running, and maybe and that may or may not cause economic collapse per se but you you apply the kind of thinking where every time you you look to to the economy, you try and uh <laughs> as the you attack the successful people in ways that end up hurting the productive enterprises, it ends up the next year you were less prosperous because you've got less production. And that's that That should be intuitive. They behaved in so many ways where they did that over and over and over again, including things like punishing successful people. And they they killed off a lot of the most successful farmers in an area because those were richer, right? They were the mm-hmm. rich class. You kill the higher class, or you punish them in different ways. You you move them to different positions. Send them to the gulag. You send them to the gulag, and it turns out next year when you replace them with other people, they don't grow as much food. Mm -hmm. And that that should be no surprise to anyone. But they thought they thought that they could plan so much, and they in that they would they had this vision of the future, and they were looking at the future. To be fair to them, yeah, they were were planning. They weren't just yeah.
1: They weren't just messing around. You had serious invested central planners.
0: Yes. Um and the result is they end up destroying their own wealth and becoming less and less powerful and less and less influential. Stalling, at the, at the very least, they're they're destroying enough that they're not getting wealthy nearly as fast as other countries are, which means their influence in the long run deteriorates. Yet somehow. I hear podcast after podcast, I hear speaker after speaker, article after article talking about the rise of China, as if China somehow has conquered those economic laws, found a blend of capitalism and socialism that works effectively, and which will now lead them into the glorious new age that will allow them to surpass us. And to be fair, there's more there's more merit to that than when we were thinking that was what was going to happen with Russia. Again, with Russia, one of the problems was we had such bad information. <laughs> we had no idea what was happening outside of very carefully controlled areas mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that made it look like things were way better than they were. Um, th- They had cities that you could go visit, that they would let internationals come and visit where everything looked like it was perfectly fine. Yeah, but it was a lie. It was a show. It's something
1: right? that we it's... see today with North Korea. Everyone's aware that if you yeah, if yeah. you can take a tour bus That's through good... North Korea and you'll be looking at these pretty shops and these and these beautiful streets, but no one in North Korea actually lives on those streets. It is a sh- it is a show like like a street
0: in Hollywood just for the tourists.
1: And yes, the rest uh... of the country
0: is nothing like that. I, I'm sure this is myth. Uh, it, I, it may be true, but I remember hearing about this as if it was—if it was true. But it, it makes the point, true or true or not—that Russians the Russians made a propaganda film where they went to uh, like the Bronx in New York and looked at very poor areas and showed it to the people, saying, "This is what it's like." This in a, is the U.S. in a market. Yes, and the people were like, "Oh my goodness, they all have TVs. Look at that." <laughs> <laughs> and then it ended up backfiring because of of something so commonplace in the U.S. that was just a luxury there, yeah, unimaginable luxury. And so that far, sounds like a myth, but it
1: sounds like a good one because when you <laughs> yeah. said that, when you said that, my initial thought was, "Oh man, yeah." If you take the worst of the United States, they're going to be like, "Yeah, that's awful." But no, that we're no. that we're so used it's- to our level of economic prosperity. That we do yes. think of the worst places in the United States as being truly awful, but it was better than Soviet era Russia,
0: right? And if you tried that now, what you what people would say is like, "Oh my gosh, they all have phones, right? They all have <laughs> look at this. most of them have a car. It may be a garbage car, but most of them have a car." Like this is a uh, yeah, we, it, people we take for granted the capacity of the market to take luxuries and make them commonplace. It's it's. It's astounding. Um, it raises us above the wealth level of billionaires from just mere decades ago. Uh, makes your life better in so many ways than than there's ever could have been with all the money in the world.
1: But back to China.
0: Back to China.
1: And and so, so first of all, everyone knows that China is not that different from Russia and how it started. I mean, no. you've got the culture revolution. You've got Mao. You've got – the, and here, once again, we've got a we've got an information problem. But the number of people who died after the Cultural Revolution, and a, a huge, a huge portion of those who died were not killed. And this is really important. They died due to starvation because of the economic central planning that was done after the Cultural Revolution. So you had the Cultural Revolution, you had direct government control of basically all of the the means of production. Mm-hmm. And they came up with plans. They sent people to the fields to produce this and this a crop and produce this and this. And one of the things they did is they, they, they were centrally planning. They were looking to the future. And they said, what we need is an industrial revolution here in China. We are agricultural. We need an industrial revolution. And so they had – they they sent the peasants who were working in the farms to go and start producing metal, to start producing steel, and and other metals.
0: That's what happened in other countries. They uh, yeah they left they, the they, farms. They, they, they saw go to the cities. where the
1: future was going to take them, and they thought they they just go there. And an estimated forty million people died over a certain number of years, and the numbers vary. It some and it could be as low as twenty million, could be as high as sixty million. But the fact of the matter is, is that far more people died in China than, than Hitler ever killed in a concentration camp. And, and it wasn't, and it, and so many of those deaths were unintentional. They were just a byproduct of that central planning. And everyone forgets that that's the, that is the origin of, of modern day chinese government that t- today's chinese government has seen a few iterations but that is the foundation upon which it is built
0: right and it's a foundation of central planning where trying to be like trying to plan for the future led them to massive amounts of deaths um, it, there's a i don't want to spend too much time on this uh, as a side note to the central planning of of the the visionary socialists and such. Um, for every Lenin and Stalin and Mao with great dreams of the future for their people, there are a ton of bureaucrats involved in the decisions and low-level leaders who do not have long-term interests in heart any more than anyone else does. They're, they're just getting by underneath the hub of Underneath the hub of what appears to be a unified government power with, with absolute authority, you have a thousand little spider webs of people with short-term interests that are just playing out as usual, as usual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't somehow transcended human nature, and nor does their centralization of power somehow limit the effect of short-term interests on long-term wisdom that's that whole that whole idea that central planning has somehow conquered that even if central planning worked is is false there's there's so many short-term decisions it's why it's why corruption in these states is absolutely rampant right the planning doesn't work and so you get by through a lot of corruption you get by i i remember uh, a mutual uh friend of ours taught a class to us uh, uh who talked about when he lived in Russia, how the total taxes he was expected to pay was over a hundred percent. It's like, like just by the, if you go by the laws, you make zero money, which is, which is a problem if people (laughs) assumed you would live by the laws, but, but, but everyone knows that that's how it works. And so you, you, you don't pay that actual amount. Um, but there's a there's a particular business there in China that is a uh, well that it, well before you talk before, before you, you talk about it, Evergrande, Dan. Yeah, Evergrande is in the news. A lot of you have probably heard about it. Well, maybe
1: I want to preface why we're going to talk about it because because the answer to to my statement about central planning, to your statement about central planning, to your statement about Russia, is as you were saying that China learned learned its lesson after forty million people died. And what they Mm -hmm. did is they combined all the best things about having a strong government and they combined all the best things about having a free market and they put them together in this hybrid that is at once incredibly efficient because they have that strong government that can put in infrastructure that can set things up to allow for the market that they do have to then be incredibly efficient and profitable And that's how you have the modern day China that we have now, which is this economic juggernaut because you've got all these people who are able to produce and they're allowed to produce by their government and allowed to make some decisions while also having this strong government that, that supports that market through, you know, through that unity.
0: Yes, and can help them compete with the world at large. Yeah, and, more and, effectively
1: yeah. by acting as one at times, while at other times allowing the businesses to to act themselves. That's the mm-hmm. narrative that we're being told now. That that's why China, or at least a large part of why China is so effective, and that's why we need unity on our end. We don't need to get rid of the market, but we need to unify it in many different areas in order to compete. And so we want to yeah. answer that concern specifically not just what's wrong with central planning but but what's wrong yes. with this hybrid
0: yes what's wrong with the hybrid and why and is it have they done what what they claim they have done and what and what often we act as if they have done um evergrand is a is a conglomerate that is focused on construction but like all conglomerates it now does a million things and it's a business enterprise there in China. With the rise of the Chinese economy and with it growing so rapidly, it's only natural that a lot of American investing, if you want to make a profit and in the international market, a good place or so that the, the wisdom has been the, so the, uh, the word on the street is you invest. One of the places you should invest is in the Chinese economy and specifically in their construction. They have a massive yeah, population, estate. the real estate, right. They need to, they need to house this population uh, they're going to be building a lot, the cities and, and apartments and houses and whatnot. Um, and certainly that's been the dream of the Chinese citizen is to actually own some property to the degree that owning property is a thing in China. Uh, it's very difficult. And, uh, and so these, a, a lot of the funding and a lot of what you'll find if you read articles about Evergrande is talking about how the Chinese citizens, they'll get they're intergenerational families, right? The living in a very small space generally, and they will save and save and save so that they can put in a deposit, some set amount of money that they pay a company like Evergrande that then guarantees them a, it's the beginning of paying for an apartment that will be constructed later. And perhaps even a house, I think it's almost always apartments, but perhaps houses are included here too. It's very urban. Yes. Um, And so, Evergrande is what you imagine already, right? Is you have people who want a building, (laughs) a place to stay, and you have a business. And our presuppositions as Americans, or as not communists, (laughs) as not Chinese, we already have in your head several assumptions here about the way this is working that are almost undoubtedly wrong. Right. And this is the problem that we keep running to with the articles. And what Brad was saying about information is that all of these articles tell a basically similar story about Evergrande. It has 300 billion US dollars worth of debt. Yeah. Of liabilities of some sort. Liabilities. Yes. Um, and, and so it looks which like it's a going to collapse, amount, which is <laughs> such a massive, massive <laughs> amount. We were talking about there, there are few. There are only a small group of countries in the world where a business could begin to approach that number. And even if you were looking at governments themselves, (laughs) that's a massive amount of money. It's a third of a trillion dollars in a lot of, a lot of government economies. If you had that kind, you'd be like, Oh, this is collapsing. This is, (laughs) this is the currency is collapsing. Um, they, so they have $300 billion in US debt, the equivalent of it. And, and people look at this and they go, okay, it has that kind of debt. Here's its business model. It's paid money. It then gets property and constructs things down the road. And, uh, and then, and right now there's tons of money wrapped up in it. And, uh, these people, if this business goes under, supposedly these people, presumably they're not getting their money back. I'm not sure what, again, that's an assumption. We don't know how the businesses work actually Mm -hmm. in China what it what what this means in the u.s if it declares bankruptcy you may lose your investment you may lose the money that you paid them they declare bankruptcy and there's nothing you can do about it there's a there's a limit to how much money they're liable for because they're a corporation which protects them from some of what is the natural law consequences of actions and yeah but all of those
1: all of those laws are are a, a a western and a primarily a u.s system and so, so it doesn't I mean applying them here is not is not going to help us understand,
0: yes, yes, which is which is the difficulty of this is we're looking at this, so there's lots of American money wrapped up in this business, and people are looking at it as as perhaps the beginning of a of a bubble popping in China, akin to the two thousand eight bubble that popped in the u s where the housing market just crashed, right you had the Uh, they're comparing to the, is it the Lehman brothers, Lehman Mm -hmm, brothers, mm -hmm. um, which was kind of the first big company that went under that propelled a lot of the 2008 stuff. And then you get the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that we talk about and you get government prop ups. And so people are looking at it and they're like, is the Chinese government going to prop them up? And you get mixed opinions on that. Uh, a lot of, a lot of people that I've read, a lot of the articles out there from your basic financial institutions and banks say, yes, you've got to prop this up. Think of all the people that are going to be hurt. Think of all the jobs that are going to be lost. Why wouldn't you prop this up is kind of the assumption. Um, and it's just, it's just strange to read about because all of the important pieces are unknown. Um, there are a few things we do know that the way that a company determines whether or not they should make long-term investments is largely dictated by the, uh, by things like the interest rate. Mm -hmm. And in Western countries, we have a major problem because the federal reserves tamper with the interest rate all the time, which is the signal of the supply and demand for long-term investment, which means if a lot of people, are saving so that they can buy a house, the interest rate should be naturally low because there's a lot of resources available because they're not consuming things, mm-hmm. right? They're saving. Mm-hmm. So there's more market resources for investment. And that's a wonderful thing to have. You have the saving of some, the investment of others, and then that saving is paid off by them taking control of that investment later, right? And this is a, this makes perfect sense. I'm not consuming, I'm saving, then that can lead to more investment in other places. But we try and do both at the same time. We try and consume and save. We want lots of investments, but we want high consumption. <laughs> and, and The result is that, is that investments begin in places where there is no corollary saving and there are massive problems. Yeah, cuz the there thing with
1: with Evergrande, the reason it's struggling is because yes. it's got all of this debt, but so many companies have debt. That's not really the problem. The problem right. is is that that debt is being used on projects that are not profitable, that are not producing yes. revenue streams that then pay back the debt. You know, the, basically how it works is as Evergrande will spend ridiculous amounts of money, like billions of dollars on a massive project. Creating huge apartments, you know skyscrapers, you know they got a stadium, an artificial island it's ridiculous, but anyways they'll they'll create these giant <laughs> projects and they'll have a bunch of them in the works. They'll finish the projects and they'll they'll sell it or they'll lease it, and they'll get you know and usually when you sell it, you get this huge amount of cash flow that then can can go to pay off the debt you you got in order to fund the project and have profit on top of that. What's happening though? Is that Evergrande has all these projects in the works, and they're not nearly as profitable as Evergrande thought they would be. And so, if you have several projects that you spent one point five billion dollars on, and they're not even going to bring back one point five billion dollars, maybe you can't even sell them right now, and it's and it's being delayed and slowed down, and and the the markets changed in ways you didn't expect, and now you've got all of these projects that aren't producing revenue, but that still cost you all of this money. And that's when you get in trouble. I mean, Evergrande specifically has interest payments on debt that they haven't been able to meet. They're struggling, struggling to to even keep a lid on their debt because it's gotten so bad. But that's that's because of their inability to to be profitable. And that's really I mean that, that I mean there's there's a few reasons that could be one, they made really poor decisions you know one they're mismanaged in many different ways or the other option is that they have been unable to accurately predict where the market would go. and that's worth noting because that's something we shouldn't see in a government stabilized. Unified system that China promises to be. That's what we always argue is happening here in, you know, the wild west of capitalism is that people can't accurately predict what's going to happen and that causes loss. But no, what we're saying here is in this government controlled system, it's not a little bit off. It's so incredibly off that Evergrande is losing money hand over fist because of that. Um, One of the big things in China is that there's been a huge real estate boom for a very long time in China, and I think that is actually starting to catch up with China, that they're going to have too much real estate, and that bubble is going to pop, and Evergrande may just be the tip of that iceberg, and, yes. and you're going to see see much more. Much more of that, and 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 Dan, I know you have the answer for at least part of why why that that real estate bubble is about to pop, and it has to do with population.
0: <laughs> it does have to do with population. Well, it's well, what you're saying about profitability is is so intuitive um, that you, if you look at a construction company that was a small construction company building houses, you'd say, uh, you know, they would they would get a client. Who wants them to build a house and would pay them to build a house, and they negotiate a price that works for both of them, and then they would buy it, build it. Right? They would build it and they'd get paid. and And assuming that everything works normally, uh, things are great. Um, of course, if you want to make more money, what you do is you get ahead of it. You don't build on demand; you build ahead of the demand. Or in anticipation of the demand. You say, "We say, well, look, lots of lots of people want these kind of houses. We expect that because of." the the influx of people coming different things that's going to stay there so that if we start a project that takes us a year to finish it will be wanted at some point in that process and we'll make money off it you start to predict the needs um this is in a nutshell the art of what it means to be an entrepreneur and what it means to to run a business and and to create something like that you're not just satisfying the needs of of customers for a, for a fee but you're anticipating them if you want to be really successful and ahead of the game. And you use all kinds of data to make that assessment depending on the scale of what you're doing. So if you're going to build like an apartment complex or a skyscraper worth of apartments, as is often the case in some of these high-rise apartments in, in, uh, in China, right? Your, the reliability of the information you have is really important and what you need to know is the supply and demand as it is and and all kinds of things about the people moving in and i mean I, if i knew all the things you need to know i wouldn't be doing this podcast i'd be building skyscrapers and making a <laughs> you know, making a fortune <laughs> or right? not this anymore. is more or not this is the art that they're engaging in and this is the skills that they would need at the highest level too to manage this company um there are, I saw an estimate that there are 80 to 90 million more apartments than there is demand for in China. That's, that's so far off. We watched a video and we found on an article that showed 15 skyscrapers that had been, they weren't finished, but we're not sure what exactly that entailed, but it, there are 15 skyscrapers in this area together. Yeah, they're probably Next they're probably like
1: other. 20 to 30 stories. They're small skyscrapers, but they're they'll those super high-rise apartments, you know. So they're big mm-hmm.
0: apartment buildings. They had been built as part of this city project and no doubt, uh no doubt the cities play a extremely important role in this that they don't play in the US that we have no idea what it is and the articles don't even, seem don't to even acknowledge to realize that, would yeah. be an important aspect of it. And there are these 15 skyscrapers, they're they're the outside looks like it's done. We, we can't tell if they're windows. Yeah, the structure. Still probably is, a lot the structure is complete. The bones of the structure, at least, is complete. They've sat there for eight years. They realize now they will never be used, and they're demolishing them. You watch them all get demolished at the same time. They all kind of collapse in. Um. There are Which cities. Is crazy. There, <laughs> it's it's there are cities there in China that were built based on planned. Uh, Planned things where the the whole city is finished you 've got shopping malls, buildings uh, again more skyscrapers and things, and you have and it could hold many millions of people and there are a hundred and fifty thousand people there it 's almost like a ghost town mm-hmm. but it 's brand new this This is what central planning looks like this is what it 's always looked like. This is what happens when you because the way that they we've talked brad was talking about the hybrid you know it's got the market the benefits of the market and the benefit of centralization well how do you direct the market elements you control the signals you control the information so that they make the choices that line up with your vision of the future you you in as I said, the West does this with the Federal Reserve. It's yeah. the one area where it's almost universally accepted. It shouldn't be. It's It messes all kinds of things up. You tamper with those numbers so that they act according to your script and build in the direction that you have determined is wise. And that is truly the only way you get people building a skyscraper full of apartments when there are millions and millions tens of millions of apartments already open that can't be filled. Mhm. Mhm. It's China may be the future. But if it's the future it will be because America started central planning too.
1: I was I was about to say all of all of this is not to demonstrate how the u s. is better than China. All of it's this not. is to demonstrate what we've been very clear about in discussing, you know, the u s. economy, which is that this hybrid is not a reasonable solution. You know, we've talked about, you know, what people call crony capitalism and and uh, and this this government capitalism mix in the past, specifically about the u s. Yeah. And and the same problems we've had in the US they're having over there in China that yes this hybrid system is a lot better than ordering all the Chinese peasants to go produce steel instead of food. Obviously this is better. <laughs> but but to argue that this is better than than the free market is is horribly incorrect. A great example of that is Hong Kong. Hong Kong for the longest time was allowed true economic freedom and they used that to become this hub of productivity and wealth massive amounts of wealth that were produced that China took advantage of and and was much much more successful than mainland China even though it was you know partially controlled by China but it was almost like this experiment in free market that that China did and and now in in recent years, China has been cracking down on Hong Kong and limiting Hong Kong and limiting its productivity through government intervention. And as they've been doing that, Hong Kong has not become more profitable and more successful. It's become less so. That's inevitable. And to argue right. the opposite is simply to ignore the facts, is to, is to twist the facts, is to, is to obfuscate what's actually going on. Which China right. does a lot.
0: Right, <laughs> Which China does. Yes. When we, I remember reading the articles we read from them about, uh, about the news of the, the, uh, the UN summit and, and what happened in the US's hypocrisy. And it's just, it's, it is so, it's such propaganda. And, uh, it, yeah. Anyway, the, and we haven't even mentioned, uh, we've t- we focused on the central planning aspect. They have serious demographic issues. Also caused by their central planning. <laughs> also caused by their central planning. They are uh, approaching a point where, uh, where like us, they will have extremely few workers relative to the number of old and retired people. And again, I don't know what retiring looks like in China. Do you get to do that there? Um, whatever the case, their healthcare is going to take up more and more of their – their finances in major ways, and their their population is going to top out. Now, if you were to say which who's going to be the future, China or India, I would say India, and it's not a question. It's like of those two, if one of them is going to emerge right now, it'll be India, unless China changes all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I think China will actually decline in the near future. It, it, at the very least, their rate of increase is going to slow. To the point where they're growing slower than we're growing, which the distance between us is going to increase.
1: Yeah, to put it simply, when people are comparing China to Russia during the the Cold War, we agree with that assessment. That just just like that, it's going to be used by the United States as an excuse for all sorts of government action. And just like that, what we're looking at right now with China is not an inevitable rise, but really China at its peak. That China, Mm -hmm. over the Mm -hmm. next 20 years, this is its peak. 40 years from now, China will be less powerful than it is now. Just like you could say the same thing basically at any point during the Cold War for the Soviet Union. At a given time, it it doesn't necessarily have to collapse, but it's not going to be the same level of power because it's inevitable. As long as they keep using the systems that they are, and there's almost no way that China's going to change. With how with how tightly controlled the the, the yeah. government
0: is, I, yes we how you change it once it gets to that point without serious with without like a straight up yeah I don't know that's that's a topic for another time I agree with you I I don't think it's gonna change I don't think it's gonna change um it, it's a, it's so interesting um and you hear again I just reading the articles about it. The way that they emphasize it, they use Keynesian economics, which is, which I think is fundamentally flawed. But even then, they assume so much about the relationship between the income of the business and its costs. I don't know, so much of that, all of the land is owned by the state. All of it. Which, which means that even in the level of land acquisition, the costs and things are going to be politically motivated in ways that, that are unpredictable and make Running a business, uh, a political game rather than a game of predicting the needs of the people and anticipating the costs. You're not rewarding entrepreneurship in whatever game they're playing there. You're rewarding sycophancy. You're rewarding political favorites and that their construction industry is typified by this. This is the worst case of them. This evergarden, evergreen, evergard, evergrand. <laughs> it's like evergarden, <laughs> evergard, evergrand, uh, is though we're in the worst shape but of course you're going to see a price collapse or at least you will if they allow it Mm -hmm. i don't know how many of the prices they're literally fixing right (laughs) this is and which is just going to lead to more bad investment if you set the price of something that should be lower or higher what you're doing is you're saying it's more valuable than the people think it is which means that people are going to get less than this, of this than they want, or more of it than they want. Right? It doesn't reflect the reality of what the people are interested in. And only supply and demand can do that naturally, left alone without any tampering of the numbers. Nothing else generates that data.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, at least until we have mind-reading AI.
1: No, and, that's, <laughs> and that is always the problem with, with central planning, is that no matter how, good it, how well-intentioned it is, and you can argue, of course, about how well-intentioned it can never yeah. be, Yes. and and to argue that the PRC is a is a benevolent dictator is, is <laughs> just ludicrous but
0: it's a funny thought
1: <laughs> but but on top of that that is the 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 never ending fact that they are just not going to be able to predict the future more effectively than than the the ultimate computing power that is millions and millions of individuals making decisions based off of their own personal economic incentives that we've never seen a supercomputer that can come even close to the computing powder the computing power of. Of the, human, of the human brain, especially when you look at the human brain working in tandem with every other human brain in the country. And that's something right. that the central planners have never been able to understand. That when we talk about the free market, we're not talking about some fanciful belief in, in an invisible hand. What we're talking about is the fact that when you in- align incentives for each individual, that they will benefit by being productive and that they will lose out if they're not productive. What happens is those people get productive in ways that no one could have planned and no one could even have predicted. And that's right. the power of that that it's it's almost a hive mind. that's that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the free market. We're talking about this yeah. hive mind that is this supercomputer made up of millions and millions of individuals who are all acting, in this incredible harmony with each other that you would never believe possible if you hadn't seen it.
0: Yeah, a harmony to the degree you stop crime, right? Uh, they will, they will attempt not to do it inharmoniously. They'll attempt to do it at each other's expense, and that's that's what you stop. That's what needs to be prevented. No, and that's um, so and that's that the, what the only route is. is through harmony, right? And so many, so the- many
1: cases today. <laughs> what we see is is people using the government t- as an instrument of force yeah. to bypass the There's no harmony process. here.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So I will impose my will across many that are unwilling. Yeah. It's, uh, I like the way that you put it there in terms of processing power. Because you're right, people don't think of it that way. What they think of it is, do I want the smart guy or the dumb guy? Right? <laughs> they put it one to one. And that's not the, the reality ratio. Is you, you, no, you want, you want everybody seeking to solve as many problems as possible. And that's what you get in a market. That's what you get if you leave them alone. And they will do it more or less, right? Depending on cultural things, how hard Just they like work these other things. Just like the central planners will. Just, but yes, yes, yes. This, you're right. The central planners are not above those forces either. <laughs> um, and they'll act more or less morally depending on the culture. But again, as you're saying, that's, that's not, that's not something you can dictate anyway. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting problem, and it's been interesting to go back and forth on it, to be initially persuaded about the rise of China and then to look at their economics and be like, like no, no, this is
1: – It's not – as as someone who, who felt that way, absolutely, Dan, who was like, yeah, China's hybridization is working. The more I look into it, the more I say, no, no, it, its it's not – all that we are seeing is the fact that China is covering up their costs so that they just look rosy which they can yes. do because they have that control.
0: Yes. And in reality, what they're doing is just crazy, truly crazy amounts of malinvestment. They're spending money, resources, time, effort on things that are taking them nowhere, that are making no one's life yeah, better. Yeah, and
1: you can look at the, good- the quality of life of the average person in China, and that'll give you, give you a good idea of how well they're actually doing.
0: <laughs> yes, which is something that will improve across time if they just keep trading with people right? Regardless of what they do. But if their own policies do not get in line, it's going to, the rate will be slower than other people's than other nations. And that's, it's, it's the economic realities that these central planners inevitably run up against.
1: Yeah. That that, no uh, amount of rhetoric can get past the physical
0: realities. Right. And with that, thank you for listening.
1: This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at RethinkingPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at RethinkingPolitics.Podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks. Have a wonderful day.